Hi, this is Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, interviews with the living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. And this week, coming to us from the Pacific Northwest is Bree Smith, and she's responsible for overseeing all operations and services at Return Home, ensuring that every process throughout the facility is optimized and organized. She's also the voice of Return Home, delivering their message of sustainable death care to both traditional media and social media alike. She's been licensed funeral director and embalmer in Washington State since 2014, and she still resides up in the Pacific Northwest, as we mentioned, with the love of her life, Zach, and their dog, Pepper, who both bring her to the, her center when she's feeling overwhelmed by this incredible journey she's on. So welcome to the show, Bree. Hey, that was quite an intro. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and I used to live in Portland, Oregon, and I love the Pacific Northwest. I miss it a lot. So um, kudos. Oh, for God, it's there. beautiful. Yeah, it's uh, there's nothing like it. Um, or actually, maybe there is because I haven't been everywhere on Earth, but it is so unique. <laughs> Before we get into your career and all about you and your opinions on life and death, uh, we always ask our guests how old they are, uh, where they grew up, and what generation, if any, they consider themselves a member of. Yeah, well, I'm 33 years old. I I think I'm very strongly a millennial. <laughs> and, uh, I grew up uh, actually kind of moving a lot. I, I was born and raised mostly for my adolescent years in Montana. And then I moved to Wyoming, Colorado, uh, Idaho, uh, Arizona, and eventually Washington. So I've done a lot of moving in my life. Wow, you really have. And kind of in a weird corridor, too. Um, I'm down in Arizona now, but it's not at all where I was raised. Um, and I've, like I said, I lived in Oregon. Um, I love Montana. I've, I've only been there. I've spent like maybe seven nights there, but were you from the West or East part or, you know, which part did you live in? That's such a poignant question you ask Mike, because actually <laughs> I am from the East part. When okay. I say I'm from Montana, most people think I'm from the pretty part. Um, <laughs> I'm actually from the very, very rural East, uh, uh small areas and my family owns ranch property in oh, those wow. areas. Cool. Do you, do you find it surprising that uh, celebrities are buying up like places that most people consider barren and wasteful, like what you're describing? Um, you know, for me, it's this thing of you kind of are where you grow up. And, and to me, that kind of community is extra special because they're mm -hmm. willing to really tough it out and not have they have to create their own beauty. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> totally. No, I would. Uh, based on even people from Missoula, the air quotes, pretty part, uh, I would not mess with the tenacity of anyone who's survived Montana for any period of time. It's uh, definitely we're, cool. We're our own brand person, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, actually, just for my uh, very personal, like, fun, uh, would you compare the culture of Arizona to Montana, if any? Do you have any, like, thing to go on with that? Oh, God, that's a great question. Um, they're very different. I would say that the similarity is that people were kind. Mm -hmm. Like when I moved to Arizona, they were so warm. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like that's a common thread in Montana. Anywhere you're going to go, you're going to get treated like family, basically. Um, and that's followed me here to return home. We, we treat everyone like family. But uh, but what's different is, is the Pacific Northwest is well, they call it the Seattle freeze. And that is, it's kind of hard to socialize up here. So for sure, I made a ton of friends in Arizona. And I think the sunshine just makes everybody so dang happy that, you know, they're, they're pleasant to be around for the most part. Yeah, that's really cool. That's awesome. That's kind of my take. I don't love it here, but I always tell people it is a pleasant place to live. Like I'm not going to complain even in the horrible, horrible summers. Um, and I'd rather have a horrible summer here than the winter in Montana, probably. So Yeah, that's arguable. Definitely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it is arguable, for sure. Um, all right, cool. Well, that was uh, actually incredibly interesting for me. That's probably my favorite topic of conversation is uh, comparing United States cultures and mini cultures and stuff. So thank you for indulging me. And uh, let's hear 
first from you about exactly what Return Home is. Like, when was it founded? Uh, what's its purpose and all that? Yeah, so Return Home uh, was founded after legislation passed. So that would be January of 2019 uh, by our CEO, Micah. And he essentially just knew that the space was in need of of change. You know, the funeral industry uh, as a whole right now has been the same for a very long time. Some might call certain aspects of it a little antiquated. And I think he saw the need for a different type of service that is adjacent to composting. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's called natural organic reduction legally. We call it terramation. But basically, his whole point was to get people into the facility. So for us to be able to create a completely different kind of service experience than what people are familiar with. Um, At Return Home, what we do now is we operate very much like a traditional funeral home as far as we do all of the coordinating of transportation and services and filing of death certificates and kind of all of the basics. And then we really turn it over to the family for um, ritualization and Mm -hmm. and really giving the power back to the family. We do home services. Um, We offer everyone the opportunity to come bathe their loved one with us. Uh, So we do kind of hands-on services that are a little bit different than what you might find in the traditional funeral industry. So we would go through all of that, but ultimately our, our disposition method called terramation is the gentle breakdown of a person's body after they've passed away into life-giving soil. And we do that in a facility that's in Auburn, Washington. It's about 12,000 square feet. And we have a 74 vessel capacity per month. So that means that we can serve uh, many, many people. We have not reached capacity yet, uh, but we have the capacity to do so. It was important that we were built to scale Mm. because we didn't want people waiting for the service as we anticipated that it might be popular. And I, I think we anticipated correctly. We've been able to, our first year we served 80 families and this year is our second year we're on track to serve over 200. Wow. So, um, yeah, things are growing and people resonate with the service because we are giving them back power in a lot of ways. We're giving them, uh, the hands that love people in life should be given the opportunity to continue loving them in death. And, uh, we push that really hard because we think it really matters. It really does. And um, it's funny, I've gotten into so many arguments with not only in-laws, but my own family about my desire to do exactly this. And for, I don't even remember the first time I heard of it, but uh, I didn't even know it was a legal issue. And then I started like hearing things about like how in New Orleans, like they were had a poor economy and they invented the funeral industry and all this stuff. And, and I'm going to let you correct me when I say a bunch of stupid things because I am, you know, an amateur researcher who just says like, looked up this kind of stuff. But I do know that uh, it is very absurd how much control and weird things go on in death. And one of the reasons I'm so familiar with all this is because I worked in a hospice ward. And uh, actually, I volunteered, I should say. Um, And it was just really interesting. Um, And then the pressure that my friends have told me about when like they get upsold and stuff like that on caskets and all that. Um, So again, I threw a lot of splatter out there. And I'm gonna let you kind of like feel through it. But I have a very direct question first, which is, um, what is your your opinion, not your company's, of embalming and just kind of the history of that? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm an embalmer. So Mm -hmm. for me, there's definitely a time and a place. I have given families uh, 
priceless moments with loved ones that would not have been able to be seen otherwise, oh, cool. uh, especially when something's unexpected, right? So I do believe that embalming has a time and a place. I just don't know that it needed to be ever a requirement or a default. Um, I know for a fact, based on uh, history, that you know embalming largely became popular in the U.S. during the Civil War. Uh, and for me, that, that there was a purpose there. They were embalming people because they were really far away from home mm. and they were sending them home for final goodbyes. And there's really a purpose behind preserving someone's body for transportation. Um, but it's 2023 and refrigeration is a requirement in many, <laughs> many states. And if it's not, it should be. Uh, and really refrigeration does a wonderful job of preserving people. People can be held at a temperature by which their body does not break down quickly. I have had services at return home for people who have been uh, in my cooler for a month because their family was either traveling internationally or they were just having a really hard time uh, moving forward. There have been a couple of different cases. Um, so I know that it's not as as much of a requirement as, as maybe the industry has made it out to be. But I definitely know that if somebody has uh, tissue gas or they have something irreversible that uh, they have taken damage and they need to be put back together, there's, there's a lot that we can do here at Return Home still with the skills that we've, we've observed and, and been able to apply since we've opened. Uh, but there is nothing that will do the same job as what a really competent embalmer can do to bring someone back to their likeness. So time and a place. That's such a good answer. Thank you. And uh, I like every other dumb person who probably starts talking to you about the subject. I was the biggest fan ever of Six Feet Under, the show on HBO. And I'm, I mean, if you have not yeah. seen it, I'm sure you've heard of it at the very least. Um, do you consider embalming like an art? Like, do you actually have like a kind of like a creative connection to the embalming part? Like, is it an art to you? Absolutely. Yeah. Because um, actually, when I first discovered that I was going to be good at this. I was in an anatomy and physiology class and we had to take a skull and we were given the race and the sex of the individual who the skull was for. And then we had to use uh, eraser depths. Basically you would cut an eraser, one of those skinny like mechanical pencil ones mm -hmm. um, to different depths based on what the average depth of a nose and a cheek and a chin and the forehead and those types of um, features. And then you would apply clay and rebuild that person to their likeness off of their skull without ever having seen that person. Um, so I knew I had a knack for this when I did that. And my, my person was a gentleman who was Vietnamese. And it's, it, my teacher said was very hard to, to distinguish Asian ethnicity specifically because they can look similar depending on the region that they're from. Um, and in this case, I very much made him look like a Vietnamese gentleman to the point where my teacher still uses that head, uh, or I was told at least as an example of kind of this is the expectation. Um, so it is an art because they're not just anybody can can put somebody's face back together again and and their body and their hands and their ears and and their lips and you know so they call it restorative art when it's not just a standard embalming but it's actually putting a person back together um i think embalming itself is a science i think restorative art is what it is i think it's an art that's so cool and i wish i'd known that term ahead of time because that's a great one but now i have it um and this is a weird question, but uh, I have the kind of job where if someone asks me what I do on a plane, sometimes I lie because I don't want to get into a long conversation about it. I'm curious <laughs> if 
when you tell, do you ever lie about what you do for a living, but not for the reason that you don't want to get into a long conversation, but because it's just going to bum someone out or weird them out? Or does that not even cross your mind anymore? You know, there's like a desensitization that happens when you've been in it for so long. I've done this since 2011. Mm. I've been integrated. So I've got so much familiarity with it that for me, I just tell people I'm a mortician. Um, if I want the conversation, I tell them I compost people after they die. <laughs> awesome. And if I don't want the conversation, I just say, I, I, yeah, I'm a mortician. And usually they're either interested or not, you know, uh-huh. very divisive. Wow. Did you meet Zach when you were young or did you meet him later in life? Um, I met him, yeah, as a professional. So, um, we actually, we were algorithmed. We met online, cool. Um, cool. <laughs> but he, he, I think he's always had a great deal of respect for what I do and actually, as it were, he's experienced a lot of loss in his life. Mm -hmm. And so I think he actually, I think we have kindred spirits. I think we both hurt for people who lose people and it, it, it bonded us in a lot of different ways. So that's so cool. Um, wow. That's a really special way to look at it. Um, yeah. And I kind of, when people think it's weird that I was doing hospice and I would go back to it, I just have young children right now. So I'm taking a break. Um, you know, it's, it's strange to me because I think like loving people in death and beyond death and in that transition phase is important, but also beyond it, which is what we're talking about with you specifically. And so I am kind of curious. I have personally never felt like a strong connection to the body of someone who passed. So like, for me, it's not important to see them and all that, but I'm curious if you could kind of talk about the psychology of that connection to like saying goodbye to a physical body when a person is deceased and all that. Do you have any thoughts on that? For me, the funeral industry, I used to think that when I came in on, maybe I came in on a Sunday and I picked somebody up from where they passed away. And then I met with their family on a Monday and we were doing those services. We're doing a direct cremation and I have them an urn and death certificates by that Friday that I had done an excellent job for that family. What I've learned since starting at Return Home is that I was doing an excellent job for my boss, for sure. Mm-hmm. But I was doing that family a disservice because what I was essentially doing was my my value to them was in the disposition of the body. It was in taking their loved one and returning them as ash. Mm-hmm. What I've learned is that people get a lot of value in the time that we offer because terramation is not a quick process. We take uh, 60 to 90 days. So mm-hmm. we're with these families for two to three months oftentimes. Um And what that means is that we have opened ourselves up to be a resource for them for a much longer amount of time. And something that a lot of people don't think about that I try to talk about really openly is that uh, your funeral professional, your local funeral professional, director, embalmer, whoever that person is, will usually have access to a ridiculous amount of resources. Like we know everybody, we know the police, we know the Mm. fire, we know how estate closers, we know um, people who are in hospice who can help if somebody's going into hospice and they have pre-plans. We we have just endless access to people who are resourceful. And if we can't solve your problem or help you, we oftentimes know somebody who can. And so for me, what I've seen is that we're able to help people through way more in depth, the aftercare and the grief journey than I was ever able to do as kind of a, I guess I'll call it the traditional industry professional. I, I was not able to feel as connected to the families and be as much of a resource to them based on the timeline, just based on the fact that we were, 
what we called turning people over very quickly. We were meeting with families and they were coming in and leaving our care with speed. Um, that's been the biggest change I've seen is that we can really walk people through the services. We take our time. We take it slow. There's no rush to get paperwork done because our process is already going to take so long. We let you take your time. And then you can also take your time with your person. So like you touched on, maybe it's not important for you to put your hands on your person. That's fine. We are a full service. So we're here to do every single step. That's what we are professionals at. It's what we're good at. But for us to be able to change the conversation and say, do you want to put your hands on them again and and see them and love on them? Because we're going to be doing it anyway, and you might as well be present for it. And then they're like, no, I'm not interested at all. And then the next day they call and they're like, oh yeah, you know, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll be there. But like, I want you to do everything. Like you take control and we schedule it and then they come in and it's so innate to us to take care of our dead. Like Uh it really uh is. It's been amazing to see people just completely take control. I get kicked out of that room 50% of the time. (laughs) They're like, I'm done. I don't need you. You can step out. To me, that is success in in what I set out to do originally, which was help people when they lose someone, help people hurt. Because we, when you remove the person and, and say they pass away at a hospital and they the, the next of kin or their loved ones never get to lay their eyes on them or their hands on them or participate in any way, there's a lot of denial that goes on. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people who feel like their loved one hasn't died because they never saw them deceased. Wow. And there's there's a lot of complexity there. Yeah, no, totally. And and by the way, I just want to thank you for your eloquence and just amazing answers. I'm just I know we're in the middle of an interview, but I like to let someone know when they're just dazzling me and making me so thrilled. So thank you. <laughs> oh, it's so kind. I have a very random question for you. I've never even thought about this before, but since you live in an area with a lot of homeless people, what is the policy? What does the city do with the dead bodies of homeless people? Do they send them to facilities and then pay for it? Do taxpayers pay for it? And I'm not asking it in a political way. I'm just totally curious. No, it's not political at all, actually. It is, uh, it's contracted through the medical examiner typically in the area. So like in our case, it would be the King County Medical Examiner that's in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And what happens is, is there's a 90-day hold when somebody passes away uh, where they have contracted funeral homes that will do due diligence to try to reach out to the next of kin to the best of their ability. Um, But if the person is indigent and, and ultimately what we would consider maybe abandoned, uh, there are crematories that have been contracted with King County medical examiner that care for those cases. And then oftentimes they will do, um, like maybe a, a joint scattering of remains at a cemetery or an inurnment of urns in a cemetery space. Um, or sometimes they're just held in perpetuity. You know, some funeral homes have urns that are 70 years old that are still sitting in, in the basement. Um, but most of them have policies and procedures. We were very interested in getting involved, but it came down to the portion quantity at the end that we could, we would love to be of service. Um, but they don't have family. So they would go to the woodland. And then if their family ever did show up wanting, you know, the urn or wanting to to have participated in any way, we can't offer them that. Yeah. And so return home was deemed not viable for King County medical examiner to use and contract for that service. Um, but it's established and, and people still do receive respect, even, even when they don't have people, the people doing the work, the funeral directors, the, the crematory operators often do show them a lot of care. Wow, cool. Thank you so much for answering that. Um, And uh, another kind of like 
ancillary related question is, um, do you ever, do you or do other people in your field, like ever need to seek counseling? Because like, while you're used to it in person, like there's something like building up inside of you, like just seeing people grieve, seeing so much loss and stuff, or is it kind of actually the opposite where it's like therapeutic? Yeah, I definitely wouldn't call it therapy. Um, I think that the job itself is extremely challenging. Um, I right now in, in my career as, as I'm overseeing ops is I'm I'm not in the same place I was. So Mm -hmm. I don't seek counseling right now. Um, but I, I do, we have free therapy resources for our team and we believe very strongly in being able to have access to, uh, mental health services because of the job. Um, it's not always the same. It can be a grieving family or it can just be, um, we don't charge for children. That's something return home release stands wholeheartedly on. If, if you're 17 or under, um, we are going to do the service free of charge because your family deserves to see your life live on plain and simple. Um, so for instance, I might see an infant and my brother just had a baby and it might really shake me up. And so we have resources for those moments and then continual resources for, like you said, kind of the emotional impact that varies day by day. Yeah. I was blown away when I first had my son, like seven years ago, eight years ago, um, just by how different it is to think about what you just talked about and hearing you say that you do it for free for 17 under like literally brought tears to my eyes. That's just so cool. Um, and it's not cool what we're talking about, but I just think, you know, that's a great, great, um, attitude to have. I have the most hack question ever to ask you. I was saving it towards the end of the interview, but I have to ask it. Um, one, it's yeah. a one and one a and one B one. Do you believe in ghosts and B if you do, um, have you ever been scared in the field that you're in? Hey everyone. If you're a fan of the show, please head over to Mikeyop.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P dot com. Thanks. You know, my ghost is such an interesting term, isn't it? Like, what does that exactly (laughs) mean? I believe in energy. Cool. I believe very strongly in it. Um, I have not had any experiences at Return Home specifically. I think because it's kind of like a, it's a new facility, and it's a really peaceful, different kind of environment. my thought is this, I have had a couple of experiences at other funeral homes that I have worked for where there's no explanation for what took place. Um, so yeah, the answer is absolutely. I believe in energy and the transfer of it. And I don't believe that, uh, I, I think that that is, it's the point of life is that energy cannot be removed. It can just be transferred. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had one specific, very, very weird thing that happened that was absolutely unexplainable that like to this day, I get goosebumps when I think about it. <laughs> Would you please tell it to our audience who's dying to hear it? I guarantee you. Oh gosh. The old <laughs> ghost stories. Um, yeah, I will. You know, you. it was, it was at my old firm. We had, I have to kind of maybe paint the picture. I would call it an L shaped facility. So the reception was at the short end of the L and then you kind of walked and then there was a big long hallway. And at the, at the top end of the L would have been our break room. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's got the fridge, it's got the sink and it's got one specific door that is kind of loose and it's got a really specific sound when you open and close it. Um, I was sitting at the uh, short end of the L in the office and I heard someone trying to get in the back door. Uh, It was a Sunday. I was on the grounds by myself. Mind you, this is a funeral home cemetery crematory combo. Okay. I'm sitting in the, in just waiting for the phone to ring kind of thing. And I hear somebody try to get into that back door. 
And that's not uncommon. You know, sometimes staff comes in on the weekend, whatever. Uh, but in this case specifically, they were really shaking the door. Like it was, it wasn't like they tried to get in and it wasn't, it was locked and not working. It was like somebody was trying to break in. Um, the Montana girl in me grabbed the letter opener <laughs> and it was like that. It was a little shocking. So I grabbed a letter opener and I'm like walking down the hallway and I'm kind of pulled up against the left side so I can see down the hallway, but they may not be able to see me directly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm looking and there's nobody out that door. It's a glass door, not, not a person. Uh, the wind's not blowing. And the deal is, is that along that long L, there are windows the whole way down. So if there was somebody at that door, I would have seen them go one way or the other. I would have actually physically seen them leave the door and walk a different way. There's nobody. I'm like, okay, my mind's playing tricks on me. I'm just tripping. Uh-huh. I am at peace. I go back to the desk. I'm sitting there. Not five minutes later, it happens again, and it lasts until I can visually see the door. So I get up and walk back down, and it goes until I can see the door. And the second that I look at the door, it stops. Wow. And I promptly locked everything and freaking left. I just left the facility. I was like, I'm not going to sit here and do this. And then, you know, during the same time period, there was a gentleman who used to work after hours at the firm. And one evening he was around, you know, 6.30 p.m. And he was on the phone with somebody from Alaska. And that person, they're having a conversation. It's been, you know, half hour, whatever. So the person on the other line says to the gentleman, I'm receiving a phone call from the landline or from the line where you're located. Is there somebody there calling me? And he can see visibly that the second line is being used and he's on the first line, but there is nobody else in that facility. That facility is completely empty. There is nothing going on. So that is a secondary to my experience, Mm -hmm. but he got super freaked out by that and walked around, made sure there was nobody there. Um, but, but was it a glitch? Could have been. Mine was much more visceral. It was very physical, like I could physically hear. And so, but ultimately, we've had a couple of experiences for sure that have been questionable at the funeral home. That's, I mean, incredibly powerful. And as you were talking about the part with the door rattling until the second you looked, my got goosebumps, which is just, that's my BS detector. I know that's stupid and people can laugh at me, but that is literally how I go through life is when something resonates, I get a physical reaction usually. So that, uh, that is a great story. Thank you very much for telling it. And uh, we are nearing the end of the interview. And I haven't even asked you the only other question we always ask everyone, which is what do you think happens when you die? And I sometimes clarify it just to make sure it's clear. I'm not asking you, like, what do you think happens to the average human when they die? I'm just curious what you imagine will happen to you specifically when you die. Oh, okay. So when I die, I'm probably going to be doing something adventurous. <laughs> I tend to be doing things. And, and I imagine that as I age, I'll probably become more reckless. I'm already <laughs> like moderately reckless. Um, but I think that what will happen is, is I'm, I'm hopeful that I'm, I'm able to be seen because my husband has expressed wanting to be there with me and to put his hands on me. That's Aww. something he wants to do. But ultimately, uh, my hope is that I'm doing something really reckless and adventurous and that I, it happens quickly but in a way that my husband can say a final goodbye to me and then my body will undergo the terramation process. I really, I was a green burial girl before. Um, and for me to be able to, uh, go back to my garden and my, I have, as you can probably imagine a ridiculous amount of house plants. I'm that guy. (laughs) And 
to be able to kind of transfer my vitality into something that my family can continue to be in their space and to, and to um, nurture. And uh, I'm really at peace with that. And as far as like spiritually in my soul, I mean, I definitely believe in souls and, and I, I hope that, you know, my relationship with Jesus has granted me access to heaven. I think <laughs> it has. I, cool. I definitely am. A, I wouldn't call myself religious, but I am a very spiritual person. And I believe in, in people who can impact the world being, you know, the people who I would like to see up there with me. That's a great answer. Thank you so much. And I like how you gave us the two compartments of it. And uh, my wife is a fellow, like everywhere I look, there's like a brand new plant offshoot that she's rescued from a plant. And I'm (laughs) finally done, like trying to beg her to like, just do it a little less. I just have given up in a good way because I do love the environment. I love plants and animals. So um, it's cool though, to hear a fellow person describe it from the first person side. Uh, Before we let you go, I love to have my guests just kind of give some sort of like philosophy message to our audience, something hopefully positive, but it doesn't have to be that you just want people to hear. Yeah. Well, I, for me, I've got a couple things that I like to talk about. And one is like what we're doing at return home because we're mm-hmm. growing um, and we're establishing a new service space. And we're talking about uh, in December opening a pet swing. So you just talked about oh, cool. plants and animals. Yeah. Um for us to be able to offer the service to people who have uh, their animals have passed away is such a focus for us. So it's not philosophical in any way, but I want to put it out in the atmosphere that that's something that we're working on right now. And it means everything um, that we can provide services to families who have lost loved ones in the way that they're human or animals, you know? Yeah. Um, And our, my philosophy and kind of my, 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 my message to the world would be, Loneliness is an epidemic. And if you feel lonely, reach out to your local funeral parlor, reach out to the people who help your community. Um, They have so many resources for you. And the internet makes it really easy to not feel lonely, even if you are. Um, Human interaction is so important and being able to feel like there are people around you who sincerely care about your well-being is vital to the grieving process. So my my message is, is if you have lost someone and they were your only person, rely on people in your life who are professionals like your morticians who can help you find people to love on you. Um, because we are all too lonely and we don't give enough love to each other, not out of the fact that we don't want to, but out of the fact that the internet's made it really convenient to not lean on your community and just love on each other. Oh my gosh. I love that so much. And that's actually, I'm going to steal that because it's a shortcut to a much longer answer. I used to give to why I volunteer in hospice, which is exactly that, that there's a lot of lonely people dying actually. And, uh, they really need company. So um, thank you so much, Bree. This has been an incredible interview. Uh, my brother is our booking manager and he gets us the majority of our guests and you are one of them. And I'm always just like sending him effusive praise. So Sam, I know you listen to every episode and you're going to probably edit this one too. So thank you so much. And Bree, thank you so much. And to our audience, thank you so much. I'm just full of love for everyone on earth. Uh, even people who other people say they have no love for all of you. You're all special to me. And I just want the earth to grow with love. So Bree, thank you for joining 
joining our army of people who are dedicated to the same mission. And if you want to support the show, the best way is to head over to MikeyOp.com. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. And you can sign up for my free weekly philosophical essays that should make you laugh and think. And uh, other than that, this has uh, been another episode of Coffin Talk. My name is Mike Oppenheim, and we will see you soon.